We're going to be speaking about a, a company uh, called Bistra Meats. And if you want to go to the website to check it out, they've got a story there. They have a whole explanation about why they're so different, and it is pretty fascinating. Uh, it's Bistra, B-I-S-R-A, kosher.com. That's Bistra kosher.com and you could use the opportunity after our conversation this morning at some point to go to the website and do your own research and see what they're all about we have two guests in our studio this morning uh usher silber is here and i start with him because he's the one who introduced us uh to this revolution that's going on with bistra meats he's a partner at gsdj and uh, good morning to you, Usher Silver. Good morning. Great to have you here. And Thank we'll you. explain the whole story coming up in a moment. And Rabbi Avidan Elkin is founder and president of Bistra. Uh, welcome and thanks for being here this morning at JM and the AM. Thanks so much for having us, Nahum. And we should mention, by the way, that Rabbi Elkin, who has roots in New Jersey, I mean, that's quite obvious from our conversation that happened uh, 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 here before we went on the air. But in addition, you have a connection to the beloved city of Mitzpah Yericho. Absolutely. Where, as you know, the Pilachowski family uh, lives, and uh, Aliza Pilachowski is the mayor of the town of Mitzpah Yericho. And my son happens to be married to Tamima, who uh, spent the last 10 years or so in Mitzpah Yericho. And by the way, the, um, the, the yeshiva that you attended, and your smichas from there, correct? Yeah. Rabbi Sabato, is it? Rabbi Sabato, that's right. We, well, I have heard, and I guess, I guess it's because of my family's association with Mitzpah Yericho over the last few months, I have heard so much about that yeshiva yeah. and how uh, magnetic a place it is for Lima Torah and for, and for really advancing as a person. It, and, uh, and I assume you would agree that its reputation is well-deserved. Uh, absolutely. Rav Sabato uh, really revolutionized the, uh, uh, the world of learning uh, back in his day. Very strong advocate for uh, Bikyut, for learning. There's no excuse for not knowing anything. You got to get into it. You have to, you know, uh, appreciate that there's a Mishnah, Talmud, Tanakh, Midrash, a uh, big advocate of the Zara Kadosh. And he's attracting people from all over Israel. Absolutely. Right. I have people from all over the world. Right. Now, how would you, and I, it's funny, I said we're starting with Asher Silver, <laughs> and look at this. I'm with Rabbi Elkin speaking about Israel. How would you as an elementary and high school graduate of New Jersey schools, how would you end up in Mitzvah Yericho? You have time for a story? <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a while, huh? Uh, well, I, I uh, spent my last year uh, in college at uh, NYU. I was learning in Morning Seder by Rev. David Feinstein and doing the afternoon and evenings at, uh, at NYU wrapping up. Oh, the so you have a Lower East Side connection as well. As well, as well. And uh, I came to Eretz Israel, uh on a visit, hoping to find a shiva that would uh, that I could call home. My plan was to stay there and, and not come back. And in speaking to my grandmother about it, Allah Shalom, uh, I discovered that her brother-in-law was a, um, a yeshiva day school uh, principal, and it helped Rav Sabato get his accreditation uh, with Mishra Chinuch for the yeshiva high school that they have at Mitzberichu. So I got myself on uh, on the phone, spoke to him. Took a bus past uh, a dead donkey, uh, a couple of camels. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of brown hills. <laughs> right. 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 I hear the Pilchowskis have spiffed the place up quite a bit since then. <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, <laughs> they, they reign supreme and for good reason. <laughs> that but, is uh, true. Fascinating yeshiva in the middle of a desert and an amazing Also Rabbi Weiss, who a lot of people remember from Bergen County. That's right. He's also in Spayericho. Had done some time in EMT and in right. Kirov and yeah. Fascinating uh, place, uh, a wonderful collection of families. An amazing amazing. Yeshiva. So you leave there, and then it's back to the U.S. Uh, we were, f I was five or six years in, and I received my first offer for a uh, shtel, as they say, in uh, in Fairlawn, 
the uh, Sephardi Center of Fairlawn. Um, I spoke to Rav Sabato, the other BAME that I was uh, very much in touch with, and they were very strongly encouraging of uh, shlichut, of going out, reaching out to people, connecting in a way that uh, that's meaningful to them. So it was a, uh, a Sephardi shul, overwhelmingly Israeli families that had never had a rabbi before, and right. had a whole host of... Um, Are you there till today? Pastoral challenges. I'm not. I recently, unfortunately, participated in a funeral for someone who was next to was killed in a car accident. But uh, since then, we moved on to, after five years, we ended up in uh, in the city for seven years, the Upper West Side, and then back to Teaneck and Bergenfield about seven years ago. Now, how does all this relate to kosher meat might be the question that people are asking as we've invited two of the main people uh, with Bistro Meats into our studio. And, and, here, and by the way, before... Anybody draws any conclusions about anything that we're going to be discussing, halakhically, etc., we would advise people to discuss this whole issue with their own rabbi. If they want to pursue any type of change in the way they've generally dealt with kosher meat, they should discuss it with their rabbi, the same way we did. Yeah. Uh, Rav Moshe has a, uh, an amazing and, and very short and concise tshuva on the topic where he's uh, very strongly encouraging. I mean, he wants the practice to continue. He wants this Masorah to be passed on, uh, e- even if at break even, just for the sake of not losing it. Uh, and I think uh, Corona made a very compelling case for that. Whenever there's a, uh, a hiccup in the supply line or whenever there's uh, price spikes, you know, difficulty importing, exporting, uh, the case becomes clear. So, so back to the, the original question. Right. Uh, I was in Chinuch for many years. And uh, like everyone else in Chinuch, you know, it's a, uh, a slow and painful starvation in terms of the Parnassah. <laughs> uh, quite a way of putting it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Teaching As we're about to start a new school year, <laughs> some people might not be regretting <laughs> the decision to stay in Chinuch. So, some of us look forward to the school year a lot more than others, but uh, those on the receiving end of the paychecks, often enough, it's a little more complicated. So, uh, you know, Parnassah was getting difficult. The family was getting bigger. And uh, having done uh, a lot of learning in Eretz Israel, I've done some shimush uh, by Rav Giat. Previously, had come to the yeshiva and broken down an entire lamb, and it was the first time I'd actually seen nose to tail the entire thing. And you know, we grew up hearing this happened in Israel. In Eretz Israel, I mean, right. they, they break down the entire lamb, meaning that normally many people in the Ashkenazi community who are listening right now would never have eaten anything on the back half of a lamb. Would that be the right way of putting it? They would probably never have eaten from it because it was probably never made available. Right. Because there's so few people who know how to do it, which right. goes back to you know some other historical right. economic And we'll uh, talk about that. Yeah. But, but the reality is that growing up, and I guess I am your prototypical Ashkenazi Jew, growing up, we always had that chart in our heads that we would look at. That yeah, And this is how we were taught. We were taught the front half, and I know it's not exactly half, but you know what right. I mean. Right. The front half of an animal has meat on it that's available for us to eat once it's dealt with properly. Properly by the proper rabbi, shochet, etc. And the back half, I guess, is sold to other markets or dealt with a much different way because nothing on the back half of these animals would we ever eat, right? That's essentially how we, meaning as someone like I, grew right. up. Right. The, the famous chart, in fact, it's a, a bit of an animation that uh, came out of commercials, was popularized by none other than Hebrew National. That the front half is kosher, the right. back half is not kosher. Right. It's funny that, you know, yeah. it's a... Uh, uh, not we, exactly. we would always turn to them for the expertise when it comes to Kashrus, <laughs> yet they're right. the ones who popularized it. Interesting. Right. Uh, and so, uh, technically speaking, this is a practice that uh, isn't even questioned, not by the Shulchan Aruch, not by the Ramah, had been done for thousands of years. And when you say practice, you're talking about preparing the back half of an animal property. Oh, yeah. was the, for, world, the world over. Now, right. there, there are some items that need to be removed. Right. And you have items like this in the four quarters, too, right. which many people are surprised to hear. We're not allowed to eat uh, blood, obviously, so there's a handful of arteries that need to be removed. Right. 
there are certain membranes that are very heavily uh, irrigated with blood need right. to be removed as well. How, what, what do we call the gidanusha in English? How do you uh, say The sciatic nerve. Sciatic nerve, okay. Yeah, it, it is the nerve that right. innervates the entirety of both legs, has to come out. And that's a biblical commandment not to eat it. 100%. Right. This is uh, the right leg, right. the left leg, and a domesticated animal, uh, undomesticated. And the chalev has to be removed. Chalev is, uh, by and large, the fat uh, along the uh, inside of the spinal column, facing the, the abdomen. Some membranes we take off on the inside of the belly. Um, and it's a little bit of uh, work, the reality of the matter. And this is something I discovered once when I went to a, um, a non-kosher butchery demo after I had learned Nikur and started uh, practicing here. Overwhelmingly, most of it comes out anyway, even in non-kosher practice. Mm, it's not that it's such a revolution. No one's sitting there eating gobs of fat right. you know, with a spoon. Right. So it does They want it to be appealing to the consumer. I mean, yeah, it has to be right. presentable and right. you know, otherwise cooks out uh, somewhat greasy. And uh, the sciatic nerve, the hamstring, you know, it's just this tough rubbery nerve that doesn't cook out. It doesn't uh, reduce, won't make stock or gelatin. It just stays like a rubber band, so no one wants to eat that either. Uh, either they'll remove it or they'll eat around it, but right. the bottom line is that this is something we need to remove, and by and large, everybody removes it. I mean, the tradition right. in uh, kosher butchery, Ashkenaz, Sephardi, all over the world, was to, to take these things out. No one was making a living right. selling the back half of their animals you know, for peanuts, uh, right. whatever they could recover. And what, what does happen, by the way? I know that you're not a spokesman for those who do toss out the back half of the animal, but what practically does happen when a, when a, you know, a steer, when a, uh, when a cow is, is shechted, is slaughtered here, and, the tr- and again, out of habit, the, the uh, processing plant is sending you know, the quote-unquote kosher stuff in one direction and the rest of the stuff in a different direction. Right. So it, it's actually very important what you mentioned, this, the kosher and non-kosher uh, distinction. First of all, if the lungs don't check out, it'll go down the non-kosher line, four quarters right. and hind quarters together. And that's, uh, on the Jewish spectrum, that's, that's complete. That's everybody, right? That's the whole spectrum. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And that's the, Nobody is going to give a kosher certification when there's injured lugs, let's put it. Yeah, if the lungs have adhesions, if right. they're, overwhelmingly it's the lungs that have problems, and it's not at all an uncommon thing. Right. Uh, you'll get different answers from different people, but spend some time on the slaughterhouse floor. Uh, you'll hear something like 50, 55, sometimes 60% might come out glot, but it's maybe just a bit more than half. And that's glot. Betosef is a lot more complicated than that. So you end up with a scenario where Half the cattle you're shechting aren't scoring glat. And of the ones that you're taking, half of it's going down the non-kosher line yeah. as well. You're looking at somewhere between 70, 75% of the entire product output of a slaughterhouse in a kosher operation that ends up going to the non-kosher market. Uh, so what that does is that it obviously complicates things and slows it down quite a bit. And it... Uh, it increases the premium the kosher product from the four quarters needs to command. That's an understatement. In order to support the entire sure. industry, right. the entire operation. So there's some, you know. People uh, complain about the price of kosher <laughs> meat. You just summed it up in 60 seconds, frankly. Right. And, and it's it's very unfortunate that most people aren't aware of the realities of it because the, the economics are very compelling. Uh, it really is difficult to sustain a kosher operation. You know, we all heard about what happened at uh, Rubachkin. And right. the, the pressure is on the end. And no, none of these people are rolling in billions. And the pressure on the industry is such that uh, it, it creates some incentives that uh, that can complicate things from a kosher perspective. And right. also Parenthetically, you might be able to say it about the entire kosher industry, not just me. People think everyone's ro- – because of the, the branding out there, people think that people are rolling in money. And it is a really tedious and difficult job and very hard to make money. Yeah. Sourcing is difficult. And if you're going out of the country, the percentages uh, may not be as right. high. 
getting quality product is very difficult. You know, uh, corn is uh, is a staple when they're finishing animals to, to score choice and prime on the USDA's grading scale. Uh, in Central and South America, corn is very much a staple of, of the human diet. And so they don't spend as much money feeding them. And then the foreign product is going to be inferior. You're not going to get nice juicy briskets or nice uh, ribeyes. But uh, that's what they're sometimes looking to do. So even <laughs> not only is it expensive, but the quality of the product is often uh, subpar. So yeah. it's true. A lot of people do feel that way about kosher meat if they've had none. And uh, what what is discarded, or as you described, or what is passed on to the non-Jewish market, the non-kosher market, that is sellable, right? That's that 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 is sold. I assume at market rate, or should I assume because it's sort of secondhand, it has to be sold even less expensive or cheaper. Very astute uh, observations. Uh, it is becoming more and more difficult to unload really? non-kosher product. Well, a lot of places, you have chains like uh, Whole Foods, um, Trader Joe's, I believe, also have these uh, demands of what they call humane treatment or right. humane dispatch of the uh, They the want animals. to be distanced from the way we handle animals. Yes. Right. And what that does, it removes, it, it reduces the market the potential B market that you have to, to slough right. off that product and what you can command for it because the big bucks are being paid by places that by and large are expecting more and more. Uh, you know, the stun, like a captive mm -hmm. bolt, with a, a pneumatic uh, piston on it. So uh, it does become more difficult and less profitable to try to unload that. And the reason that people did it in the first place was because they came to the U.S. and, you know, cattle were so cheap and, and largely raised on grass that it was just easier for them to shecht a lot more. Back then, the non-Jewish market didn't have particular demands, and sure, if it was shechted, nobody cared. They were still sticking them with a knife anyway. Um, and your kosher consumers, and this is a really important point, a very important historical point, your, your kosher consumers back in the day weren't particularly wealthy, right? I mean, the late 1800s, you had... Uh, Hard to afford meat. Yeah, you had German uh, yeah. immigrants. Uh, not all of them owned banks. You know, There were people who had uh, their joys and challenges as well. Uh, early 20th century, already you're talking about some Russian immigrations, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, you get uh, you know, some Lithuanians, some Hungarians, all of whom were, were absolutely destitute. Yeah. And they were eating... If they had fish or poultry, it was a... So carp, you know, if they got yeah, uh, gefilte fish, really sure. was a delicacy because Correct. they could afford anything else. If you could afford the odd chicken, you were doing okay. Right. As your economic prospects improved... Uh, you might occasionally buy ground beef or you'd buy these cuts that today people, you know, uh, revel in, but uh, briskets, cheeks, tongues, shanks, things that have to cook forever in order to uh, to reduce and become edible. If you had a steady job and a reasonably good income, you were, uh, you know, poaching the odd rib steak or a hanger steak or a skirt steak. But by the time you had made it and you were eyeing your, your tenderloin, your filet mignon, you know, the, the T-bones and porterhouses, you were probably buying them at Peter Luger because what happened was you were going off what I call this cliff of kosher consumption. Right. When you started out pouring from, right. and you were buying whatever you could afford. <laughs> it was getting, you know, ch chicken was like a It's a so sad, but it's so and ironic. You, well, so our crowd, you know, remember the stories, right? Sure. Uh, these were, th this was what the culture was like. Sure. As people came into more and more disposable income, their consumption habits would change. And they wanted better, the, and better meant not kosher. Uh, past a certain point, right. unfortunately it did. I grew up, uh, you know, born 1978, so we grew up drinking Manischewitz, mm -hmm. not because it was tasty or delicious, because that, right. that's what there was. And if you were keeping kosher, you knew you were making sacrifices that... Uh, you're not going to have the fine wine of that generation. Not going to have the fine wines, you're not going to have any fine cheeses, right. you're not going to have any fine meats, right. you're not going to have much of anything, really, the market was very limited. So this uh, demand for, for 
you know, luxury goods in, in kosher consumption really started, I'm going to say the late 80s, early 90s, some, some wines started right. to come on the scene. Of I think course. It I mean, started. This is, yeah. And and uh, today, the, look this at the show question. has been one of the one of, <laughs> one of the sources that's featured a lot of this these uh, yeah. uh, these items. In fact, and not to get too off topic, but you've just described um, really. I don't want to say legitimized because I don't think people people might resent that. But you have just described um, the reason why we see some of the outrageous meat choices and meat prices. <laughs> Of today, in other words, regular average people out there find out that there are folks in our community paying, I don't know, one hundred and twenty dollars for a steak, or you know, getting deliveries at their home from these specialized, you know, specialty meat butchers that are charging. I mean, God knows what. I mean, name their price, right? It could be it could an be arm and a leg, an arm, to say the least. Right. And and they are frustrated by it. They're like, this is what we've become, and this is what's important to everybody. It's fine wine and fine meat, etc. But you just described the human nature behind all of this. Yeah. In fact, I I, I put a lot of the uh, the onus on the kosher consumer themselves. Sure. It really is something uh, crucial to bear in mind. They're demanding it. Supply and demand. There's a buffet, a kosher buffet at Yankee Stadium because the consumer is demanding it. Right. Otherwise, they wouldn't do it. And if, and if people are willing to pay the prices they're paying for the product they're getting, right. you know, there's going to be, a, there's supply and demand, there's going to be a market. Right. Someone's going to meet you in the middle. Right. Uh, being aware of other options out there, being aware of the fact that you, with your consumption habits, can move things. Is really important, and the, and it goes back to the history of Nikur in uh, in North America. And and, and, the, and the quick explanation of Nikur is just removing what has to be removed in order for the meat to be kosher. Right, which we tradi- again in the Ashkenazi community traditionally we have not done over the last many decades. We've avoided it. Uh, it sort of reminds me because the word I keep hearing is misora. That right. in the Ashkenazi community we don't have a misora, and therefore we avoid using the back half of an animal, which I totally respect, obviously. And it's amazing that it took me till this age to actually understand it. But it reminds me sort of uh, of the turkey and giraffe situation. You know, there are rabbis who will not eat turkey. They believe there's no misora of how to shecht it, and whether it is in fact you know shechtable in a kosher manner. So we thank God. I have to love turkey. We thank God. You know, made that adjustment. And we, but there are rabbis even today who won't go near it. With the giraffe thing, what I've always heard, and we've discussed this with Rabbi Slifkin many times, is that sure, giraffe is kosher, has the qualifications to be kosher according to the Torah. But we don't have a misora about how to shecht a giraffe. So either we avoid it. Completely, which 99% of people do, or there's 1% of Shochtim out there who have an expertise at it, and people like Rabbi Slifkin then are able to go, if right. they can find the giraffe somewhere, and actually, and actually Shechtim. I, I could shortcut the entire discussion <laughs> with ahead. a much more practical point. First of all, giraffes happen to be massive. Uh, they yeah. have a, a, disagreeable, a, ladder. a disagreeable disposition when right. it comes to being Shechtim. Uh, most animals prefer not to be, and really? they're very expensive. Right. They, and you have the whole the animal it, rights movement well, behind them. Which is, you know, complicates no, things. No one wants more. Jeffrey the giraffe to be injured. <laughs> so the uh, Rav Sajagon and his uh, Targum, he translated the Torah into Arabic, the spoken Arabic of his time. And he translates by the, uh, the eight species of not traditionally domesticated animals, let's say the more wild animals uh, mentioned in the Torah. The Zemer, it appears as Zamer in the Torah because it's on a Sof Pasuk, you know, at the end of a Pasuk or Atnach, sometimes you, uh, you'll change the, right. the punctuation. The Zemer is an animal that uh, Zemira, you know, like Zemira and Shabbos, you mm-hmm. think about singing. So he translates the Zemer as a giraffa in Arabic, mm-hmm. a very unmistakable name. And his explanation to it is that they don't make any sounds. 
It's called the Zemmer because... Lashon Saginar. right, because it doesn't sing. So right. they've discovered, I think it wasn't that many years ago, that uh, their voice is, uh, their vocalization is so bass that it carries for miles, but we can't, it's inaudible right. to us. The giraffe, Other giraffes hear it. Uh, apparently they do, yeah. I'm sure they fight and they bicker and they have in-laws and they, they figured it out. <laughs> so the giraffe was very commonly consumed in North Africa. In fact, they shafted so many of them, uh, the Muslims and the Jews. What year are we talking about? Oh, I'm talking about this uh, up until uh, two, three hundred years ago. They basically extirpated them from North Africa. So, uh, so how'd they get out of our diet? How'd they get out of our regular, you know, shechting uh, uh, we, we, regimen? We ate them out of the uh, the availability. No, but at some, at some point, someone market. had to it had to bring this into our halachic market that we don't have a misora and we're not sure how to do it and we don't have the expertise, right. etc. So, so the Sephardim never held from such a thing. Ah. It's clear from Rosajigo, and this is an animal that's perfectly kosher to shecht. And in fact, you have about uh, eight to ten feet to do it. You'd really have to be trying right. to miss, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. the entire from the clavicle up until the uh, the mandible. I mean, it's basically from the uh, the neck. You got a large area. You have quite a bit of margin for error, as right. I like to say. Even the government could probably figure out how to do this. Right. <laughs> but uh, you know, the idea that there's a tradition that we shouldn't eat it or that there's right. the, the lack of availability. So there were no giraffes in, in Europe right. where it was much easier to say, well, we don't have a traditional, I mean, you didn't have giraffes even if you wanted them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, does that constitute by default a tradition to not eat them or a lack of a tradition on them? If you were living in a place where you had them, you'd be eating from them. Right. Uh, my grandparents came from Morocco, for example. So, you know, if they had giraffe available to them and they had the money to afford it, I'm sure they would have eaten it like anything else. Right. Turkey makes a much more compelling case with the whole discussion about Masar. Have you ever had uh, Rabbi Slifkin on? I mean, sure. I'll tell the story, and it's a fascinating one. There were no turkeys in Europe. They didn't exist. It's a North American bird. It only missed by a few votes to be, by a few votes to be voted the uh, the national bird oh, right. to the, to the bald eagle. Right. So they didn't exist in Europe. People came here and just started eating them. And the questions went back and forth. The husband suffer got involved in this. You know, what exactly is the status of the turkey? You know, is it uh, similar to a chicken? Doesn't look anything like a chicken. Is similar to a chicken? Can they breed with chickens? Is it something that could be mistaken for a chicken? Can we kind of r- roll it in, get it in through the back door and say it's more or less like a chicken? So the husband's over had an interesting uh, chew on that. We said, look, people are already eating them. I guess that constitutes a tradition that we eat turkey now right. because uh, what are you going to do? Um, but it, it made it in despite this challenge, and it's one of the most popular birds. I think Israel per capita is the single largest consumer of turkeys on the planet. Wow. It's very interesting. So it's a bird that lends itself to domestication, you know, puts on meat relatively quickly. Which segues to another fascinating case, which is Rav Moses' case for uh, for the hindquarters. You know, you not being able to afford a tenderloin doesn't constitute a tradition not to eat it. Right. If people couldn't afford it, if there were villages in Europe where people were so poor that lots of the choicest meat on a carcass happens to be on the hindquarters, and for them it was easier to sell that to the non-Jews who were actually happy to pay for it because they could afford it, whereas the poor Jews couldn't. Does that constitute a tradition? Does that constitute a custom? Is it a minhag? And Rav Moshe very emphatically says, no. Kitniot on Pesach. You don't want to eat them. But you know that they're kosher. You know that the Gemara itself, the Chazal, ate them. You know it's not chametz. You know it's not chametz. It's a davar shenagobo iser because you know that it's permissible, but you choose customarily to avoid it. Right. And it constitutes maybe and some And this some is or is not comparable to that. Some form of a netter. Rav Moshe makes the case very emphatically that it's not. That it's not like that. It's not. He said, we ate it in Russia. Right. You could afford it. You could get it. If you had a competent monocular, you could go ahead and eat from it now. There's right. no reason we shouldn't. So you're very familiar, and boy, are we off track a little bit, but <laughs> and taking a lot longer than I thought, but you're very familiar with the Ashkenazic rabbinate, obviously. You're a Jersey boy, likely educated for 
first 20 years of your life by Ashkenazi rabbis, right? By and large. And, and even when you served as a Sephardi rabbi of a Sephardi congregation, you probably interacted a lot with local rabbis who are very involved in kashras. For sure. If someone's listening to this show, and we do recommend that, you know, because of this leap, you know, even though it doesn't seem like much of a leap, that they speak to their rabbi before, you know, embarking on, you know, on, on eating the back half of an animal that, you know, an expert like yourself has has you know how do we say Dunnikor and all that in English has Trebert has Trebert Yiddish I don't know it's English but yeah (laughs) has Trebert um would would those rabbis um because of this attitude that you just described recommend that people should avoid it anyway here's a couple of interesting points to note number one we have some uh very happy customers uh, at some of the larger kashrus organizations, <laughs> the 14th floor at the OU building. I mean, thank God there are BAME that have already, you know, purchased and, and enjoyed and, and recommended uh, further. Are you serious? Right. Uh, yes. Because the rumor is that major kashrus organizations in this country would stay away from this. That's not true. Right. Maybe we continue this conversation uh, off the air as well. Right. But, uh, no, they enjoy it on like a weekly basis. <laughs> wow. We, we live in a very funny and interesting world. The reality of the matter is, and I sent you an article, I believe, also from... Um, uh, yeah. Rabbi uh, Zivotovsky. I saw that, yeah. Not not the big deal people make of it. Many Rebbeim understand this, understanding the, the intricacies of the halacha, what constitutes a minhag, what's mutter, what's asr, doreta, darabonon. For them, uh, they understand much better than your average uh, Joe off the street who just, you know, saw the Hebrew national commercials and assumed that. Right. Now, there are Rebbeim in the Ashkenaz community who who prefer that it not be done for... Because for they're worried that there's not enough expertise in the area. They're not, not, not enough use... Not enough people like you right. in the they, industry. They may be worried that uh, you know, people would cut corners right. and they would, uh, wouldn't do it competently, right. which I understand. And, and my approach to this is always we, the only way to solve these problems is with knowledge, right. you know, with, with demonstration, yeah, explanation. I, uh, I would also point out, and it's something very important. To I mean, crazy comparison. Crazy comparison. But you know what it, what, what it strikes me as? Yes, We're told blatantly... Avoid going on Taharabayat, right? Like that's right. the, it's a blanket rule. You can't go on Taharabayat. Right. When, when we know, we've discussed this here for 30 years on this show, when we know that there are halachically approved places on Harabayat yeah. that everyone agrees you could walk on, but people are so afraid of what might happen after that that they ask you. Now, I know that that's a Doraisa, and that's, you know, but these well, are also Doraisas. Chalev is Doraisa as well. Right. Uh, so, so it would be the case for a Zara, someone tell me entering certain places in Harabayat. If you've ever spoken to a Yishai Fleischer, uh, yeah, so whose names we dropped earlier in the conversation, <laughs> you'll know that uh, it's it's not just the... Isser of a heter aspect of it is mutter is an asser, but there's the supply and demand concept right. where if we didn't go to Harabai, we didn't go to Hebron. Consumer driven. Consumer driven. And now you're hoping that Bisra is going to create a consumer, although, frankly, your colleagues have already done this. Right. You have people, I mean, obviously not doing what you're doing. They're not selling the parts of the animal that you are. But, I mean, we, we've gotten to a point, as you pointed out earlier, in the Jewish consumer world where people are just off the charts in terms of the types of meat they want to try and what they want to bring into their home. The consumers will, will change the market. Right. So if you want to go to Kevrachel, if you want to go Correct. to uh, uh, you know, right. if we don't continue going, if we don't continue forcing the government to make it safe sure. and to make it available, it wouldn't be. 
The last note I wanted to make on yeah, that was that there's a really good chance that you're already eating trebered meat, even if you're only buying OU, uh, Star K, CRC, And you're saying that because? I'm saying this because many of us don't know that there are cuts that have chelev on them that are still being removed by these same organizations. In the quote-unquote first half. Yeah. The front half of the animal, right. The hanger but steak, the same chelev requirements. The hanger steak would be an excellent example of that. It is absolutely covered in chelev on all sides. It's the crura, is the name of this muscle in Latin. It's the one that retracts the... Uh, the diaphragm, and creates a vacuum that causes the lungs to fill with air. So it's the muscle. They have the, the skirt steak, which tensions the diaphragm evenly all around, and you have the crura that's on the spine uh, just behind the uh, the end of the lungs and the heart that pulls back. But because it's sitting behind the diaphragm, in order to be able to pull it, it has to be behind it, it's covered in chelev. If you ever had a, a hanger steak, and I imagine you sure. may have, the hanger steak... Don't underestimate me. <laughs> of course I have. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine from time to time you've dabbled. So the hanger steak has chelev on both sides that has to be removed. So it's removed. I'm not saying people are doing it in right. problems. They've been doing it for, for thousands of years. Who does tray-bring for Bisra? Uh, I myself, I have a slew of uh, oh, of so you have experts. You have yeah, people have, who are experts. I have Talmudim. I have no, but meaning the fear that that some rabbinic leaders have that amateurs are doing this task, which is such an important Dolraisa right. task. That's not the case. You're educating no, people how no. to do this properly, and you're going through stacks and stacks and stacks of of muscles. You know, you really need to train a lot in order to get it. It's not impossible. It's not that difficult once you get the hang of it. You right. understand what you're what you're being careful for. The hanger steak has chalev on it. The skirt steak has to have a uh, membrane removed from it because it's uh, the peritoneum that basically faces the, uh, the abdominal fats in the back. Intestines, kishka, used to be able to get, I used to be able to get them up until about seven or eight years ago with an OU. So the intestines themselves are part of the back. If you could get it, you could get the uh, oxtail, which has some chalev on the front of it because that's where it's attached to the, I mean, the rectum, but right. that's the, the exit from the pelvic uh, cavity. Um, you have the liver which has some chalev on it as well. It has to be removed. There was a whole scandal regarding that late 80s, early 90s, that the community in the greater New York area decided that they wouldn't be teaching nicker anywhere, wouldn't be teaching anything about chalev, and didn't realize that there was chalev that had to be removed from some of these cuts, and it wasn't being done. And they, they just knew that they were traditionally consumed. These are cuts that got an exemption. They, they got grandfathered in because they were traditionally inexpensive, but tasty. Right. They so, needed it to feed people. But it was one of those mid-range steaks, the hanger steak or the skirt steak, that, you know, a little bit tougher than, let's say, the ribeye or the tenderloin. But we know that we eat them. It's a Yiddish thing to do, of course. It's one of those cuts that if you don't mind doing the work, there's a gem of a steak under it. And that's why that practice persisted. Right. So it's not like we're not doing right. nicker. It's just that we're doing it on certain cuts. If the most expensive steaks in the world are coming from the back half of an animal, and I would assume that that's accurate, are they, in fact, so much more delicious and so much better tasting than, than the steaks we as an Ashkenazi community are used to? Generally speaking, more tender. And the muscles of the back half are larger and more uninterrupted. They're not transected by uh, uh, connective tissues. The hanger steak So more a of a buttery, as they always say, buttery type. Yeah, well, uh, you know, le less rubbery bits, right. less silver skin. There's uh, Like butter is the... <laughs> pretty much, especially if it's aged. There, there's an archaeological fact that wherever they find the bones from the hindquarters is where they associate aristocracy, right. you know, higher. You could tell how, how sure. fancy or less fancy an ancient sure. neighborhood was by the bones that you find buried there. This is true even of North America with the Native right. Americans. They'll do archaeological digs and they'll see that the four-quarter bones appear in the what's probably the poor areas of the settlement. Where we the had somebody in this studio who used to shecht for, for one of the crown princes in the Middle East. I think it was Saudi Arabia. And if, again, obviously, the majority of the diet was the parts of the meat that you're describing, you know, parts of the animals that you're so, describing. Someone figured it out. 
<laughs> By the way, well, just they're because... also from Sephardic origin, so they, right. you know. And now, a well, half hour later, I get to introduce Usher Silver <laughs> to everybody who's here. We'll explain why he's here in a minute. I ahead. mean, most people don't really care about what I have to say. <laughs> Elkin is the Elkin dominates. I mean, he's been doing it for who knows how long. He's built such a loyal following. Um, and by the way, a large percentage of the customers of Bisra are Ashkenazi, which it's is overwhelming. Which is yeah, which is very interesting. But so what? Um, what I'm doing is unnecessary to encourage them to speak to their rabbis, or like, oh, they well, should. They should. Halavai. Everybody wins when we have conversations. Right. Everybody wins when we learn. Uh, we do demonstrations. Uh, sometimes it coincides with Dafyomi, with the Parsha, right. with whatever. Uh, high schools, uh, YU Smicha boys I take out almost every year. I mean, it's uh, pe- people should be discussing and conversing and learning, absolutely. I, mean, I wouldn't tell anybody to do anything blindly. Uh, but there but are you would never say answers. to somebody who innocently ate your product, you would never say to them, you know, panic, you got to go speak to your rabbi. You would say you're eating kosher no. food, and that's the end of it. You're eating food as kosher as it's right. been for thousands of years. This, uh, this is the tradition. It's not, a kidney, it's not a kidney situation. No, no, even that's just a custom. No, understood, I mean, but if someone walked up to you, and, and innocently, you know, had kidneys on their hand on Pesach, you would say to them, warning, you're an Ashkenazi, you really shouldn't need that. Right. That's Tradition, not the case here. Interestingly enough, there's, you know, uh, a bit of a movement in Eretz Israel. Of course. Now now that, that to look, we've always said that now the majority of Jews are in Israel, and the majority of Jews in Israel are Sephardi, we should, yeah. we should all be eating kidneys. But, uh, ra- but, but my efforts in this area haven't <laughs> got too far. <laughs> but it, it raises uh, other fascinating questions. We talked about the turkey before, right. having been introduced from North America. I mean, Peanuts and corn were discovered in the Western Hemisphere. So how, how that, that got happened? included and, and their derivative products, right. you know, it's not so simple. But they were on uh, the same order form, right. <laughs> as all the other stuff. The, per, the, the purchase as the rice, right? The same I, purchase I, order. I, I, guess. I interrupted you, Ashra. I'm sorry. What I was going to say was, a lot of people have that mindset that just because you're dealing with the hindquarter, you're only getting premium cuts, like okay. the filet mignon, porterhouse, T-bone. There are some far superior cuts like the flank steaks, the flap steaks, the pave that compare to the skirt steaks to the London broils that you would get in the front quarter that are not those very expensive cuts that are those affordable prices. Your point being that in that section of the animal, there's still affordable items. Right. Now, I mean, we introduced you as a partner at GSDJ, and the reason that's important is because it's that company that I assume discovered Bistro Meats, right? Uh, yeah, uh, we, we're just a, a partner. Right. Yeah, we're uh, a group uh, of partners. It's that a just financial invest. arrangement. Yeah, we're, we have but, a... But it's obvious from, from, you know, meeting you in the in the circumstances that we did that you, you're passionate about this. Yeah, we have a, a couple of partners that are really into food, and it was a passion project. We invest in a number of different companies, and two of our two of our partners were customers of Rabbi, Rabbi Elkin for a, a long time. And um, and we're very. That's quite a way to get an investor. Start with them as your customer. Yeah, it's compelling. And they just get addicted to it, and they want to. They got to come back for more, (laughs) or in this case, become a partner and have even more access to what you're doing. The the appetite comes as you eat. They say in French. Yeah, hundred percent. And and this is, I mean, your company generally goes to high end items, or it could be any type of investment. Uh, no, we're we're all over the place. All over. So yeah. it's not just because this is a high-end thing. It's something that you think will be successful, that's all. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Boy, oh, boy. Um, and how's Bistro Meats doing since this whole arrangement started? Are it's, we are we happy? It's been, it's been <laughs> overwhelming. And, yeah, it's been crazy. It's been lights out. 
Way, was, way better than we expected. I always wonder what my grandparents would say to that, <laughs> that this is going so well. It's, it's or, been growing or, like crazy. Or as, a, as an Orthodox Jewish philosopher said to me when he walked into into a Judaica store, he said, wow, Jews have a lot of disposable income. <laughs> right. And, right, you're, but you know, and you're dependent on disposable income. But but food yeah. is a bit different because we, we are told to adorn our Shabbos and of tables with, you know, delicious and right. proper food. Even poor people try to upgrade what they do, you know, in honor of. For sure. Uh, for sure. But it, it, it does tie back into what we said earlier about the uh, the economically compelling reasons for right. it, which are that if people are if we take pressure off of the same cuts everyone's looking for or consuming already, uh, the the prices come down. When people have alternatives, the prices for any particular item are going to come down. So if the only steaks I can get are skirt steaks and rib steaks, people are just going to put pressure on them and drive them through the roof. And mm-hmm. you know, I mentioned before, some of these prices are pretty outrageous. When you have more product available to you, and it's not all premium steaks, you can grind some of it, you can you know, skewer meat, pepper steaks, etc. What you're doing is you're, you're doubling the output of the kosher slaughterhouse, yep. and you're also diversifying the demand for these different cuts Relieving the pressure on a lot of them. Which so in a way, down. it's helping the price structure. For sure. In a way. For sure. Uh, that or at least... Well, the filet mignon still going to be sold at an outrageous price. Oh, my God. But it's so it good. Has to be. <laughs> but it may cause other parts, as you described, of the animal to be sold oh. at a more reasonable I mean, price. You're eating one or the other. So if it takes pressure off of rib steaks and the price comes down, who's complaining? Yeah. Even, no. if, even if, And that's the point. <clears throat> even if you're not buying from it or eating from it yourself, you still want it and need it to be there and to grow. And we right. have a lot of support, both from OU and from uh, StarK, and I'll drop the uh, the names of the institutions at least for now. We have a lot of they all want this to work. They all want this because everyone benefits in the long they, run. They all want exactly because it would it would take a lot of pressure off of the slaughterhouses that are currently under their supervision, right. the catering, the restaurants. Uh, there's another tremendous mitzvah to all this, which is that a lot of the people who went off that cliff of kosher consumption right. can be brought back. Hundred percent, like they did with kosher wine, by the way. Yeah. A lot of people who unfortunately caved into their Yetzirah and moved to non-kosher wines are now discovering that both here and in Israel is plenty available. That's great, yeah. high-quality kosher wines. There, there is no longer such a compelling reason to, right. to cross that line in order to get at something that you can't get kosher, which really should be our job as Rebbeim. Right. And I feel like we dropped the ball there big time. Very we, interesting. We need to roll up our sleeves. We need to make things available. We need to stop making choices for people. And allow people to choose for themselves. My job is to make it kosher. But you want to buy what you want to eat, what you want to deck your table with on Shabbos, what you want to drink with your buddies, that's totally up to you. My job is to get out there, roll up my sleeves, get my hands dirty, make sure we can get it kosher. Make sure we can make it available, make sure that we can keep as many people in the fold as we can. Halavai even like Avram Avinu where you're convincing people with the quality of your food and your drink. There is no reason for you not to be here. Thank the God who made this. We could be eating grass like cattle, but... He gave us this hey, it's no secret that there are people in the non-Jewish world who who seek kosher products in general, thinking, and in most cases, rightfully so, that it's higher. Well, yeah. what was the name of that girl? She was the she, she was the executive producer of E News, right? Uh, like two weeks ago, she called us out of nowhere. She, Non-Jewish lady, she's the executive producer of a, a show that has what 20, 25 million followers on Instagram. This lady from MSNBC. Yeah, yeah, something like that, and she she tracked us down. Because we we also have lamb and stuff like that, especially right, right before Rosh Hashanah, and she wanted to buy a rack of lamb and lamb chops and all this stuff, and filet mignon, and she called us up and she said, "I wanted to buy specifically kosher. We have the grass fed, uh, gra- grass finished lamb. I need it to get get it from you." And she came 
down to heck. Came, came in wearing, wearing a big crucifix. <laughs> it's funny. But, uh, so we, you don't know if that's for guests that she's having or she just wants higher quality meat or both. Who knows? Hey, you know what? But it, as you said. Contributed something if right. there was one it can only Jew be there who thing. was eating kosher. 100%. It can only Absolutely. be a good thing. Yeah. Um, if one, first of all, I'm go, I have no choice. My management is going to <laughs> be very insistent. I will tell everybody in the Ashkenazi community, before you explore all this, you may want to speak with your rabbi, and it seems you have zero problem with that. So, 100%. So there's my disclaimer, and anybody yeah. who contacts me later today, I stand behind it. The other thing is that... Uh, I went to your website. Some of the stuff is sold out. I mean, certain things are, are they unavailable like at this time of year or just as supplies grow a little dry? What, what happens we're, here? We're always, especially at this time of year, we're always struggling to stay ahead of the inventory curve wow. where people put in their orders for Rosh Hashanah already a month into in advance and uh, they know that they're up against, you know, pressure from all the other producers. And so it's uh, hard to keep up in this industry. It's hard to keep up. Uh, you know, we, we get what we can. Sometimes we get shorted because the lungs didn't check out. Right now, right. we're very careful about uh, Beit Yosef, which is uh, even more difficult to get than Glant. Um, but we have a diversity. So if we don't have this, we have that. I mean, that's bringing things back to old school butchery where there's only so many muscles on the carcass. There's only so much you can do with given cuts. Our job is to make whatever we can available or to advise you of alternatives where they exist and try to keep the uh, the consumption on the even keel because that's just inventory management. We don't. We can't check the hundred cattle just for the tenderloins, then figure out what to do with the rest. That wouldn't fly. I understand not a, that. Not a business Boy. model. Amazing. Um, Rabbi Avidan Elkin is the founder and president of Bisra Meats. Usher Solber is a partner at GSDJ, as you heard. Uh, they are, I guess, what could be called a major investor in this entire pursuit. Information about all of this. You can read all about it. You can check out Rabbi Elkin and his incredible qualifications. It's undeniable that you're certainly very thorough when it comes <laughs> to this area, to say the least. And um, uh, all of this at bistrakosher.com. Bistrakosher.com. You can also check out what they have for sale. Uh, again, take our recommendations. Speak to your rabbi about the... Uh, uh, about the uh, practice of incorporating things into your diet that you may not have had uh, since birth because of our traditions in certain ways. And um, uh, let them know about some of the things Rabbi Elkin said today, and I'm sure it'll be a very interesting uh, discussion. Bis ha happy to speak to Rabbi as well. We get a lot right. of rabbinic inquiries, and I'm happy if they reach you out. You should do tours. Place. You should go into every shul if invited. You should go to all these shuls and just we, we just did something in Queens where he literally broke down a, a lamb in front of, like, the a, entire... A yeah, <laughs> in front of the entire call. That's one way to educate consumers, yeah. to say the least. Very easy to understand when you see it, yeah. Bisrakosher.com, B-I-S-R-A, kosher.com. Check it out. And I thank both of you very much for being here and uh, continued good luck. Thank Many you. Thanks, Tom. What Appreciate a fascinating it. conversation, to say the least. More coming up. It is a Thursday morning edition of JM in the AM.